This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome back to the Paddle and Fin Podcast Network. We're brought to you by Pelican Built Tough. For all situations, go to pelican.com. Yak Gadget. For all your fine kayak fishing accessory needs, go to yakgadget.com. Eastport Marina on the beautiful shores of Dale Hollow Lake. For all your lodging, kayaking, and fishing needs, go to eastport.info. Now let's get this show started. Welcome back, everyone. Feather and Fur, Brad Hurlebus, another episode. Today we have on John Stagerwold with Rough Grouse Society. Welcome to the show, John. Good to be here, Brad. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for this one. I'm excited to talk to someone that can teach me something or another thing about forestry management and forestry practices. And I'm excited for this episode because as all the listeners here know, rough grouse, like hunting rough grouse is my passion. Like it's where I really end up, like where I want to be in the fall is up north chasing those birds. So forestry management and the whole entire plan is a huge part of what I want to learn more about because I benefit so much from it. Uh, and you're not the only one that benefits from it. You know, forests provide a lot of uh, utility to hunters, non-hunters alike. Um, clean water, fresh air, uh, aesthetic value, timber product value for uh, for forest products. I mean, I see behind you, you have an oak desk. You know, right. for example, a lot of a lot of benefits are garnered from our, our forest carbon sequestration. Um, and of course, a home for wildlife and uh, the huntable, the game and non-game species. So it's a big plan. It's a big plan. Before we really get into that, I like to start off my show the same way. And being that you were rough grouse society, and we already talked. I know you're a hunter. What? How did you get into hunting? Did you grow up in as a family thing? Did you take it on on your own when you were older? So uh, I, I definitely grew up in it. Uh, I grew up in, in the North Woods of Wisconsin, uh, outside of the city of Tomahawk. Um, actually grew up about 20 minutes outside of Tomahawk, and Tomahawk's a small town. Um, I think growing up, my closest neighbor 
was like a, a half mile, mile away. Uh, so, I mean, I, I grew up in, in, in the Northwoods. Uh, actually, I'm a third generation tree farmer. So definitely grew up in the woods. Uh, hunting was, was definitely part of something that we did growing up. Uh, but I've got a little bit of a, you know, a unique sort of background with, with, uh, um, with my hunting uh, heritage. Uh, definitely grew up small game hunting, fishing, uh, deer hunting. But a lot of those, those uh, sort of sporting traditions took a back seat as I uh, went off to college after I graduated from high school and you know, started to pursue uh, you know, my different career paths. And really, I had to start dropping things. Uh, you know, first small game hunting went went to the the wayside, and then fishing went to the wayside. Uh, I always kept up on, on deer hunting, though. It was always part of more of that hunter tradition, getting back together with family around Thanksgiving for the nine day uh, gun right. deer hunting season here in Wisconsin. So I always kept kept deer hunting um, uh, as part of part of that tradition. But uh, I'm part of that group that got reactivated essentially. Yeah. So after uh, graduate from college, you know, worked in my career for, for a few years, started to um, develop my, my own path and my crush, professional career. And, you know, slowly start to develop more free time um, in, in your career and started to pick some of those uh, hobbies and, and outdoor recreation activities, hunting back up right. that I had had to let go to the wayside. So I'm definitely part of that reactivation group. All right. And, and for, for listeners that may not be kind of familiar with that terminology, uh, you know, we in the conservation realm, hunting and fishing realm, we typically talk about R3, uh, recruitment, uh, reactivation. Um, I forgot what the other R is. Uh, I'm not the not exactly the uh, uh, R, R3 coordinator, but um, uh, getting back there. I've never heard that terminology before. So this is new to me too. I knew exactly yeah. where you're going with reactivation. Like it made perfect sense to me, but I can't help you with that third R. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, get, getting reactivated into, into um, a small game hunting was definitely part, part of uh, my, my background. Uh, but like I said, I always kept deer hunting. Um, sure. Actually until the past few years, I've been getting a little bit bored with it. Um, definitely uh getting more heavily into the, the upland uh small game hunting just as you only have so much free time out there there's only, only so many days in the year and then vacation days and time off are even more rare so trying right. to uh take advantage of all the opportunity that there is out there in in the, the natural world um whether it's going after a different uh fish species bodies of water that have never fished before uh, different small game species. Um, it, it's, I'm, I'm kind of making the circle right now in, in deer hunting. Uh, those fall days are, are too valuable to, to spend solely on deer hunting. So sure, uh, definitely sure. doing but, a lot more of the grouse and woodcock hunting nowadays. But that gun deer camp though, I mean, that's such a strong tradition in Wisconsin. I'm sure you'll still be up there for opening weekend. Uh, I, I, I try to, uh, of course, uh, COVID the past couple of years kind right. of, through you know everybody you say that and people know what you're talking about but uh definitely part part of uh um our family's sort of hunting heritage going up to to deer camp i was actually just there um this past uh past week uh doing some cleanup work some storm assemblage cleanup work and some habitat work uh improving our, our habitat at, at that site and never in battle 
to, to make sure <laughs> there's good habitat out there and available. So now that you, so what did, so after your college career, when did you decide to move? Like, come, like was forestry always part of your college plan being a third generation tree farmer? It actually was not. Uh, I wanted to get into political science uh, okay. until I realized that uh, um, I couldn't uh, couldn't deny the, those maybe those genetically ingrained uh, traits and career path that that were were kind of instilled within me. Um, so partway through my my college career, I just said I just can't I just can't handle another political science class, another <laughs> ethics class. I just can't handle debating topics with people. I just want to go into more of a scientific field. I've always kind of had a more of a scientific mind. Um, and, and you know, I couldn't really continue to deny sort of that um, predisposition to, to go into natural resources. So took up the, the field of, of forest management, uh, graduated from UW-Stevens Point in uh, 2000 and 11 with a forest management degree. Worked a few years professionally within the uh, Wisconsin County Forest System. If, of course, if you're a rough grouse hunter, you're pretty familiar with the Wisconsin County Forest System because it's where a lot of the active management takes place, uh, which means a lot of good rough grouse and, and woodcock hunting opportunity. Uh, before going back to school in 2013, um, after a few years working professionally, I decided to go back to school for a graduate degree in wildland fire ecology. Um, and then after that, right. worked at, worked in private consulting and for the state of Wisconsin for a little while before working for the Rough Grouse Society. So do you feel like the hunting tradition kind of like brought you to Rough Grouse Society because it kind of like went hand in hand? Or, or is it just, was it like the forestry management opportunities just so like right where you wanted to be? And that's kind of reigniting the fire for the hunting. Like what came first, chicken or the egg? I actually want to say it, it's a little bit of both. Um, sure. So actually one of the first jobs I had out of my undergraduate was working for a county forest. Uh, they had received some funds from uh, Wild Turkey Federation and Rough Grouse Society to hire a summer intern. Uh, okay. So I actually got a job working on rough grouse and turkey projects. Uh, so partly thanks to the Rough Grouse Society. Uh, so it, it was kind of always stuck with me that uh, it was the organization that really wanted to be active in management, um, do the type of management that I really wanted to, to pursue. So it kind of seemed like a natural fit. Nice. It's always, I'm always impressed when people can find a career that's really like in their passion. Do you know what I mean? Like that when things actually like work out, like I love my job but it's not my passion at all. Like, and maybe it's a good balance for me being completely right field in my job compared to like being in the hunting, like being in that field every day. But like for that, if, if you get like that passion and then just be able to find a career in it, like it's just like, that always amazes me that people are able to chase that and make it happen. So that's really cool. Like it was really, that's a really cool story. Well, thanks. <laughs> so with the Rough Grouse Society, you're over the Great Lakes region, is it? So I cover a, a seven-state region. I cover the western and eastern Great Lakes. Okay. Uh, so uh, we're talking Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio. Uh, that, that's sort of officially, but uh, I, I do work a little bit in Washington State 
and North Dakota. We do have uh, a chapter in Washington State and working on pursuing some projects in uh, North Dakota around the Turtle Mountain region where there are some rough grouse in North Dakota of all places. Interesting. Interesting. So I guess maybe we should start there. Where is Rough Grouse Society's footprint for the most part? Is that just uh, in, in the Midwest, mainly? I mean, because you said one project in Washington, so. But mostly, we're mostly in the uh, upper Midwest and, and eastern okay. United States. So all, all through New England, down to the southern Appalachian region, um, all the Great Lakes and upper Midwest. We do actually have some association to um, RGS Canada. So we, there are actually, rough, there's a rough grouse society in Canada. Uh, it gets a little bit uh, tricky because of, you're talking about uh, being an international nonprofit organization and, and how things are communicated and, and dollars are sure. we're between Canada and the U.S. But uh, uh, we have members all over the United States, people who are passionate about rough grouse hunting. And we've got members down in, in, in Texas, right. rough grouse down in Texas, but they love coming up to the um, upper Midwest and, and, and rough grouse hunting. Uh, Washington State, there are uh, rough grouse in Washington State, and uh, it, it's an interesting state to do projects in because it's the only time I really get to work with some of the western uh, tree species. Sure. So sequoias, I'm assuming that they have sequoias there? Or? Uh, they they I, do not have sequoias, at least not okay. in the natural range. Uh, Got they it. don't have them naturally in, in Washington state. Uh, Eastern hemlock, for, for example, okay. uh, is, is planted out there as, as a rough grouse uh, a habitat species. I wasn't sure what all the difference, because I was in Cal I live in California for almost a year, and like the sequoias okay. just blew my mind when I was out there. So I wasn't sure how far north they went. Well, the, the sequoias are, are fascinating. Um, uh, it, it, they, they just, they don't feel real. <laughs> oh, they, they're just so big and so monstrous. And that was, like that was like my first experience with like habitat because I don't remember if we were at a federal or state wildlife thing, but they were talking about it and they were talking about like back in, I believe it was the fifties and sixties, like their forestry pack, like they weren't getting new sequoias. Like they they just weren't like the seeds weren't spreading and it, and it was because there was no wildfires. Yeah. And that was the first time I had really heard that certain trees need wildfire to produce like the seeds. So you get more trees. Like I never realized that until it, they were talking about it like, well, the fire clears out the brush and it gives them a fresh hole. So I'm like, interesting. Like never like that. That's like a whole lot of nature right there. They're, the fire ecology of uh, giant sequoias and, and uh, redwoods is, is absolutely fascinating. Of course, like I, I mentioned, some of my background is in wildland fire ecology. And, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, habitat active forest management issues that are are happening in California. Of course, if you've paid any attention to the wildfires that are occurring out there, uh, you know, it, it's, it has a lot to do with the wildland urban interface and how really we're building homes in places that really there shouldn't be homes. They are definitely fire dependent communities, definitely stuff related to invasive or exotic species like eucalyptus uh, being fire prone and adding to the uh, fire danger in those areas. And of course, climate change, drought, a lot of those type of issues, but uh, there's also a large lack of forest management in certain areas of sure. California. And actually when it comes to the ecology and management of giant sequoias, the invasion of uh, white spruce is a, uh, a concern. Uh, white spruce is, is a species, it's a native tree, but it, it tends to invade sites in the absence of fire. And then when a fire 
eventually goes through, it helps fire carry up into the canopies of giant sequoia. And then you, you talk about, uh, you know, several hundred thousand year old trees getting scorched and dying because right. there's been such a, a deficit of, of fire on the landscape for, for so many years that you add to that fire danger and eventually uh, turn what would be just low intensity ground fires maintaining a healthy ecosystem into catastrophic canopy fires that are drastically changing those ecosystems. That's a lot. I mean, that's, that's a lot to think about right there alone. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to think about there, but you know, right now there's, there's an active fire in the Pigeon River uh, state forest in, in uh, lower Michigan, I guess the lower peninsula of Michigan. Sure. And uh, it, it kind of, you know, that's really that fire right now is in the footprint of not exactly the footprint, but right in the back backyard of the Mac Lake fire that happened in the 1980s. And it's just a reminder that uh, the lake states here, we are definitely a fire dependent community and ecosystem. Um, you know, we had the anniversary of the German Road fire here in Wisconsin uh, just this past week. And of course, last year was the Green Lake fire in Minnesota, a relatively large uh, wildfire. We we are definitely a fire dependent ecosystem uh, here in the in the Upper Great Lakes, and that's probably something I don't. I never really think about that. I never. I mean, I know the importance of like controlled burns for invasive species and all of that stuff, but I never really think about the bigger like the. I don't think about necessarily that in forestry management, though. I think about that in like native wildgrass areas and marshes and cattail management, things like that. I don't necessarily think about our forests also need fire and are fire dependent too. The the research is pointing more and more that that fire is is really important for a lot of our ecosystems. Even ecosystems we wouldn't traditionally think as being fire dependent, um, but having the occasional maintenance fire um, go through actually plays a lot into what the uh, species richness and biodiversity are of those specific areas. You know, to give you some some frame and context, um, some recent research actually points to the fact that the Amazon rainforest itself is a fire dependent ecosystem, but it just happens at a, at a completely different scale of what we think about. Um, sure, Amazon rainforest is frequented by fire. I'm sorry, not fire, lightning, and individual trees might be lightning struck, and so those individual trees will be struck, burn out, and have a small canopy gap created over time. But on because of the repetitive nature of all the lightning, you have on a landscape scale, essentially replacement fires um, that are happening through single tree replacement of lightning struck trees. So there, there's a lot that we have to learn yet about wildland fire um, and how it really plays into a process on the ecosystem as far as maintaining healthy ecosystems. We in, we in forestry, you know, uh, foresters, we tend to think of fire is being a treatment. So if we're trying to, uh, let's say we want to convert an area to oak or maintain an area as an oak forest, we would put a prescribed burn through it in a year that we have a good acorn crop, help to try to promote oak to stay on those type of sites. But really the, the cutting edge research is really hinting at that fire is not like a treatment. It's a natural process that we have to maintain over time. Sure. Sure. Or we run into those issues, like like we said, we have in, in in the Western states, right, where you have all that, where it just becomes such a fuel, like it's got so much fuel there when the fire does happen, 
it's just it's not that like what you said was that low ground burn anymore it's a, it's all the way to the canopy and it's causing catastrophic damage to the forest itself then it, it, exactly but even the, the the other issue of that we're not maintaining what would normally be healthy ecosystems with greater uh, plant and, and species diversity and, and richness sure sure it's a lot i mean <laughs> So how do you, you, didn't, you so, didn't think we're going to go here when, when we know that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm liking, no, I'm liking it though. I really am. Like it, I love knowledge. Like I just love to learn and like, like those random tidbits and facts that I pick up, like knowing that the Sequoia was fire dependent. Like I've talked to other people about that. They're like, what are you talking about? Like, how do you even know that? I'm like, I don't know. It's just something well, I picked up a long time. My, my, my big head's been blocking it, but uh, actually here's a, a tree cookie from uh, my, my graduate research project that I uh, conducted. That's a 278 year old red pine that we took from Northern Wisconsin that had uh, regular intervals of fire on it um, leading up to European settlement in 1880. It's actually almost like clockwork. Um, that tree had a fire scar every 10 to 12 years uh, leading up to 1880 when fire was was shut off. Uh, essentially when, when Europeans moved in, um, you know, large scale, scale agriculture started to take place, logging practices, removed a lot of trees. This was actually in a, in a more or less a, a preserve um, that was uh, set aside by by one of the notable logging camps and, and uh, uh, timber barons of the day. And it, it kind of tells a, a great story about um, Native American fires, anthropogenic fires, and how they used fire as more or less a maintenance treatment in that landscape at, at that time before European settlement to help maintain healthy hunting grounds, berry picking grounds, um, thinking about you know, how people had to subsist off the landscape. Sure. And and you I, think about in this this particular region of of the United States, how quickly an area could revegetate, grow back up to be um, unhuntable. I give this example of you run a fire through and about 10 years later, it's going to be pretty full of brush. Well, how do you how do you find game very easily using the tools at the, at the time, that era to hunt uh, your quarry? It becomes pretty hard. So people probably sent a fire through it saying that ah, it needs to be burned again to help sure. some game species. Sure. I didn't realize that I didn't realize Native Americans used fire fire as like, I didn't realize they had any like I didn't know they practiced forestry, I guess, in that way. Like that's the first I've ever heard of that. They they definitely did. Actually, the, the Menominee tribe here in Wisconsin has one of the, the longest uh um uh, traditions of of what we might consider modern day forestry in that, that regard, um, still actively, actively managing their, their force with forest management and fire. Um, but you know, this was just one part of that research study that right. we had done, but, uh, there are many other, uh, studies that are being done right now, uh, in the great lakes related to fire, even in, on, out on the East coast, uh, thinking like Pennsylvania, uh, a lot of studies being done about how really fire is a more, more major part of the landscape and the ecology. Um, one of my study sites actually found the, that fire frequented it about every five years um, before a European settlement. Um, so th there's, there's typically a range that we saw with, with certain sites. Um, usually every other year to every 20 years was pretty normal, what the okay. research is playing to, but it also greatly depends upon those forest cover types too. 
you know, sure. there are definitely, there's definitely a difference between an area um, that was more dominated by hardwoods being less frequented by fire um, areas that were more dominated by pine being more frequented by fire. And a lot of other, a lot of species that uh, we don't think probably benefited from fire uh, might have rough grouse included. Right. Actually, there's some okay. research out from the Eastern United States that points to um, fire after harvesting aspen actually pr can produce denser thickets of aspen to sprout back up after that that uh, logging and fire practice. Meaning, Interesting. Meaning better rough grouse habitat. Right. So using 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 logging and after logging coming back through with the fire then afterwards to promote even better forest. Exactly. So fire is one tool that obviously you're familiar with um, part of your degree as a man and everything else. Um, what are some of the other common tools that you use as a forester? I mean, harvesting obviously is a common one, but are there any other like ones that most people wouldn't necessarily think of? Well, what, what did all Leopold say? He said, uh, axe, plow, fire, cow. You know, it, it's, there, there's a wide range of, of tools in our, in our toolbox to, to use. Um, you know, fire is one of them. It certainly right. isn't the only one. It has its applications. It has its drawbacks. Um, you know, it, it's definitely very seasonally dependent, weather dependent. We can't always get what we need done through prescribed burning. So there are other tools in that toolbox that we, we need to and, and do look at in, in forestry. Obviously, timber harvesting is a, a, one of our biggest and best tools because we're not as restricted by seasonality uh, with it. You know, we, we definitely do try to push timber harvesting towards times here that are more conducive to um, harvesting specific species and ground conditions to make sure we're not impacting soil quality, uh, water quality. And focus on when we when we can most effectively regenerate trees back, but uh, uh, forestry practices, timber harvesting is definitely one of those tools in our toolbox. Um, uh, herbivory and, and grazing is definitely another tool um, that we we talk about in the forestry realm. But actually, more more commonly than not, we talk about the impacts of deer browse uh, on, on right. forestry. You know, thinking back before again European settlement. Uh, at a time when Wisconsin, we had elk and woodland bison across the landscape um, and uh, and deer managing the herbivory part of, of our landscape. Now today it's it's largely just white-tailed deer, but uh, some counties have deer densities right. that can actually impact forestry generation. And when we talk about holistic management, we're talking about how forest regeneration can actually be so impacted that now we don't get the stem density back in a stand of aspen or oak or hardwoods that would actually then be conducive to rough grouse habitat. Uh, so it, it's, it all kind of fits together as far as how we should be managing these, these ecosystems, just like you're kind of hinting at as we need to be using our multiple tools we have available. Right. Right. And including the science. And when you're managing a forest, you're not, I mean, you're part of Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society, but you're not just managing it only for grouse. I mean, you're managing for a healthy forest. Yeah, it, it, we, we definitely are. We're, we're looking to manage healthy ecosystems, healthy uh, forested landscapes, diverse forested landscapes. Well, we, we even, you know, we, we think of the rough grouse as this bellwether for forest health because rough grouse are, are kind of unique in that we 
we think of them as, as a young forest species, but right. But right. that's actually a, a misnomer. They're, they're not a young forest species, um, you know, just a young forest species. They're diverse forest species. When you and I are out there hunting, we're typically running to rough grouse in the fall. And it just so happens in the fall, rough grouse are utilizing young forest. Sure. But other times of the year, they're using different forested types. You know, right now, this time of year, rough grouse are nesting. They're nesting at the base of mature trees is where right. they're nesting. They, they need, you know, real, little bit forest period, they're drumming. They need mature trees that fell down to, to have a drumming log to drum off of. There are other forest types that are really important to the rough grouse ecology. You know, most, most hunters are going out in, in, you know, October, obviously they're going out um, hunting, but you start to get into late season rough grouse hunting. That's where you really kind of uh, can parse out who really knows more about rough grouse ecology, biology, um, and the habitat that those grouse are, are using at that time of year because you have hunters start to move into some of the more mature aspen stands that actually have a, a brushy shrubby understory because sure. that's where the rough grouse are moving into at that time of year. So it, it's, they're really, when you talk about rough grouse management and ecology, you're talking about a diverse forest species that's utilizing multiple age classes of forests. And that's why they're a bellwether for forest health, because if we have young forest, mid-aged forests and older forests, we're managing everything rough grouse needs. Of course, there's the other part in there that rough grouse have a very small home range. Right. Um, when the rough grouse broods start to break up, grouse can travel two, four miles. Individuals can, but after they kind of they land and figure out where they're going to be spending the rest of their life, most of them won't leave an eight to twelve acre area. So that was really small. small home range, very very small home range, and so what that means is that really within that eight to 12 acre area, we need to provide all that diversity of forest habitat that those rough grouse need. So really it, it's, a, they're, like I said, they're a bellwether for forest health. They're a champion for diverse forest management. And that's what we, we talk about at Rough Grouse Society is how do we make sure we have diverse forests that we're managing. And that's a long-term plan. I mean, this isn't just something you can sit down today and be like, we're going to create diverse where you can't just like, this can't just happen overnight. This, this, because like you said, you have young forests, you have middle-aged forests, and then you have the, the older forest. Well, the older forest is there. You can create new forest right away. Well, not right away, but, but it's that middle-aged forest like that just that matures over time. So it's, it, like, it's, it's definitely uh, something that you need to keep kind of uh, your head on a swivel about and have be mindful of as, as you're talking about your forest planning, because um, you can the, the forest is going to continue to age. It, just, just like us, time is inevitable. It's going to continue to, to age. And if you don't pay attention to what you're doing when it comes to your forest management, you can have a situation where all your forest is now suddenly old and you are lacking that young forest component. But now you're really behind the eight ball because by the time you might get started creating some of that young forest habitat, your mid-age forest habitat is now aging into your mature stuff. And so sure. it, you can run into a situation where you're just basically on a treadmill. You're just trying to create enough young forest habitat to to provide the basic needs of, of many forest wildlife species. But uh, um, without that thoughtful planning, looking years and decades ahead as far as how you're going to make sure you can continually keep um, diverse forest habitats on the landscape, uh, you're going to fall behind the eight ball. 
that's so I don't want to get like I don't want to get crazy into planning or anything like that. What on, on a typical plan is it a 20 year, a 50 year, a hundred year? Is it all of that in different stages? Like, how does it like super high level overview? Like, what is like what's a plan length normally? It it largely depends upon ownership. Okay. Um, you know, when we when we think about the landowner demographics, there there are a lot of different forest landowners. Um, you know, there's forest service land, uh, county forest land, school trust land, state forest land, state wildlife areas, industrial forests, private land ownerships, you know, land owned by NGOs like like right. Rough Grouse Society. So there's there's a real, you know, you have to be understanding and knowledgeable, knowledgeable about the landowner demographics across the, the, the spectrum. Because each one's going to have different uh, set different. goals and targets in sure. mind, manage on different timescales. Um, but typically, you would you think more holistically and long term in, in thinking about a hundred year plan if you're okay. a public landowner. Owner. But a hundred year plan is not going to be an all encompassing document. It's going to be sure. Sort of, this is where we want to head over time, but it's sure. not going to have the specifics of how you really get there. How you get there is going to be really dependent upon a 25-year plan, a 15-year plan, to basically set those targets and goals for that 15-year period. Say, here's how we're going to get here step by step over the next 15 years to then work our way towards that 100-year plan. So in every 15 years, you're reevaluating your plan to look at, well, are we meeting our targets, our goals to get towards that 100-year planning effort and where we, we said we wanted to be? And then checking it along the way to see if you're getting there. Um, you know, that, that's when it might come to uh, landowner, you know, public land ownership, private land ownership, um, believe it or not. Um, you know, again, I keep saying Wisconsin, but you and I are in the state of Wisconsin. Right, right. No, it's it's all right. We've had, pl- I've had plenty of episodes and I've never left the state of Wisconsin in our conversation. So we're fine. Well, <laughs> well land, land ownership demographics, uh, are, private land ownership in the state of Wisconsin, surprisingly enough, changes hands on average every seven years for forested land. So it's actually, you're, you're talking about an extremely short period of time um, to be managing your, your land on. Um, right. If, if you're, if it's being sold every seven years, which creates a lot of problems in the forest products industry, especially when you think about how we can sustainably manage some of these lands, you might have somebody who's very conducive to managing your lands right now. And a forest manager might say, everything that we need to do we have to do right now because we have a motivated landowner sure. who wants to actively manage his forest. Do we have to cut it now? Because in two years, this person might sell this property and you may have somebody who doesn't want to harvest that land. So then right. by the time you'd get through your, your planning process, you might have gotten ahead of the game now, but the next ownership you might get behind the game. Sure. So it, it creates a lot of problems as far as how we look at managing our private land ownership uh, as part of the, the habitat solution. Uh, there, there are some unique programs, especially here in Wisconsin. We have the Managed Forest Law Program, which has been largely successful for the state of Wisconsin. Uh, about three and a half million acres of private land ownership are within the Managed Forest Law Program. Every single one of those properties has either a 25 or 50 year management plan with them and are basically locked into that management for 25 to 50 years to make it a much easier process to manage sustainably on those lands. Uh, but then Rough Grouse Society, we do things on top of that. We actually have 
uh, three staff members in the state of Wisconsin uh, currently. Actually, we're working on more. Uh, right. But we have three staff members who are dedicated to assisting private landowners with managing their lands um, sustainably. Uh, so we actually have a position are... in Whitehall, Wisconsin, one in Spooner, Wisconsin, and one in Anago. Nice. And and it, the, when you're working with private landowners, that would be property not enrolled in MLF then, correct? Uh, at MFL, but MFL, uh, sorry. Um, they, they can be enrolled in it. Uh, so basically, right. we're, we're helping to... Um, be part of the conversation on how to, for, for starters, manage that those properties, work with the uh, USDA Natural Resources uh, Conservation Service to help incentivize landowners to manage in a, a specific way for uh, forest habitat outcomes. All right. I did not. I knew there was a plan. My father-in-law has 40 acres enrolled in um, MFL closed. Um, okay. Open, open versus closed. For those that don't know, one's open to public hunting, one's closed to public hunting. There's some different tax benefits. I'm not going to go into that whole story. Anyways, so, and his land's been, his land's been logged once, but I didn't know that when they enroll, they set long-term plans for that property. That It's actually kind of, it's kind of cool to hear that actually. Yeah. You, you essentially have a, a 25 year plan that that's, that's the bare minimum to be in the program is a 25 year plan. And essentially your, your forest is looked at at a standby stand basis. And what that means is if you have Aspen on your property, they're going to write you a prescription to manage your aspen one way, as opposed to if you have red pine on your property, they're going to write you a prescription to manage that a different way. Uh, sure. If you have both species on your property, you're going to have two different prescriptions. And those prescriptions sometimes overlap, sometimes they don't. Uh, so actually in the lifetime of that plan, you might be coming back multiple times to do timber harvest on your property to keep and maintain as a healthy forest. Um, now, the state does also have other programs. Uh, they ha just have um, a stewardship program where actually you can get a 10 or 15 year plan uh, written. Uh, actually, our, our staff do write some of those plans, uh, the 10 or 15 year plans, which don't have any sort of tax implications or um, uh, regulatory authority tied to it. It's just basically make, making um, best recommendations on how to manage property. But there, chances are if you're a private landowner in this state, especially, um, there's a box that you fit in as far as programs that would be appealing to you to manage your property in a way that, that you want to, if you want to actively manage it. Sure. Sure. And right now that property that I'm on, it's, it's really at a really sweet spot from where it is. I don't know how many years ago it was harvest, but it it's pretty diverse. And granted I'm way too far South to really have grouse. I mean, I have heard the occasional drummer this far South, but there's so few and far between. There's no way I can, my, in my conscious, I could never even chase him with a dog. I just couldn't do it. And if I ever accidentally would flush one, if I'm running into something like woodcock habitat, there's just no, I'd be in awe. Like there's just no way there's, there's too few and far between. I think, <laughs> no, I could, I can't ethically harvest one down here. That's just me. Though. Um, but the, our land right now is in this like, like the deer population's healthy in the area. Like they're using different parts of our land. We get woodcock that migrate through. We have good, there's a lot of songbirds that come through there and, and squirrel. It's a really just healthy, diverse forest. And I wasn't sure. If, and I knew it didn't happen by accident, right? At least I hoped it didn't happen by accident. And it's more than just, oh, we're just going to log it and let it grow. I grow back. I didn't think that would be the plan. So it's interesting to hear that they actually put a plan in place for these properties. They, they, they do. Uh, state, they, they, it relies heavily upon uh, a lot of forward thinking by the state, taking on the, the action 
of helping write these plans and also an army of, of private forestry consultants that actually uh, now work to actually draft these plans, help implement the practices on the ground. That's really cool to hear. I mean, and I've seen it firsthand. I've seen the benefit of the benefit of it because I've hunted other for like other private property before. And just because you have private property doesn't like I've hunted private property before that was not managed at all. It was generations old and there were no deer. It was like, they're just, there wasn't, and we were there for deer hunting is why I was there, but it's like, no, like this isn't like, I was here for the experience because of the people I was with, but we were there for the experience for the people because the deer hunting was not in that part of the woods. And, and, you know, and, and you asked a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, maybe why I chose RGS as sort of mm-hmm. a career path, why I work for RGS. And, and that is one of the things I do love about uh, the Rough Grouse Society is that we, we do talk about uh, diverse forest management, largely, again, because rough grouse are, are the bellwether for, for healthy forests. And it's something that I think um, rough grouse hunters are really in tune with and understanding that the need for diverse and healthy forest uh, landscapes, not, not just for the sake of, of, of rough grouse, but for a, a wide range of, of forest wildlife, uh, game and non-game species, that I don't think you, you'd get a lot of times with other hunters in, in, in the hunting communities. Now, I'll, I'll give this example that with going back to oak trees that a lot of hunters, uh, a lot of landowners who are deer hunters that I interact with are always very hesitant to harvest their, their oaks and sure. manage their oaks actively. A lot of, a lot of deer hunters, they don't want to screw up the acorns. Right. You know, they, right. They, they, <laughs> they tend to think about keeping the oak trees so that deer have, have acorns to eat, not thinking that, you know, more holistically that acorns might be available for a month of the year. And right. deer need other things to eat as well. They need cover. They need escape cover. They need uh, cover to raise their young. They need winter browse habitat. They need herbs, forbs, and grasses to, to browse upon. So there's a lot more that needs to happen in these forests than just managing mature oak cover type to produce acorns for a month out of the year. You really need to be talking again about how are we managing diverse forests for, for uh, white-tailed deer. And that kind of goes back to what you said about rough grouse, rough grouse, hunting rough grouse in fall, they're in younger forests a lot of times. So that's where you get that imprint, like that impression that they need young forest when that's not the case. They need a diverse forest. So yeah. to, I, I understand that correlation completely because I can't count them. It's like, oh, we need to find the acorns. Well, if, like, if there's nothing else there but an oak stand is for miles, that's probably not going to hold much for animals out at that point. It, 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 exactly. Really, it's really trying to find that balance of, of healthy, diverse forests when when you're when you're hunting um, forested areas for for white-tailed deer. Sure. Of course, uh, you starting into the uh, you know agroforestry or farm forest interface areas. That there's there's different things at play when when you have corn right. on the landscape. Right. When there's corn, then you've got some. If there's still some there's some hedgerows in between farms for bedding, like everything starts to change, add a little water in the mix. But but that might be a little bit of my my bias uh, hunting in the north woods of Wisconsin, where um, we're we're definitely not in farm country. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's and I've hunted. Um, I used to hunt up there a lot for um, my our deer camp was up there when my my best friend's father was still around before they moved back south. Um, I think we were up there for five or seven years for deer camp straight. And it's completely different hunting the big woods. And we were up in Vilas County. 
So it's completely okay. different up there than where it is now where I hunt in Columbia County. And while we have a wooded section, it's a lot of farmland around us too. I mean, it is a completely, it's a, it's a diverse landscape between you have marsh, you have wooded property lines, wooded property lots with big farms all around it. So it's a completely different experience between the two. So I understand exactly yeah, what you're saying yeah. when you hunt the big, when, like when you're hunting the big timber up North, it's completely different. For sure. So, boy, I don't even know where to take this yet. Do you want to talk about any, like, I don't want to get too much. Like I, I don't want, like a lot of my shows go long and they go more than an hour. And everybody who listens to me knows that I, I never get out from, get out in a show in less than an hour, most of them an hour and a half. But is there any projects you want to talk about that you're currently working on that were like, that are just like this, like really was like for me right now, like my, like my golden goose, like this thing is like, I worked really hard to make this project happen and it's coming to fruition. And like, this one's really to be excited about. Actually, yeah, there, there's a lot going on uh, talking about uh, forest conservation, the work that we're doing within the Rough Grouse Society. Um, our, I, I guess for, for starters, I have to say our chapters are, are all being really active this time of year. A lot of them are getting out handling and managing um, a lot of their chapter habitat projects, having habitat days, doing tree planting, shrub planting, trail maintenance work, uh, uh pollinator planting, clover planting works. There's, there's a lot of work that the chapters are, are doing right now. Uh, garbage pickup and, and cleanup at, at sure. different wildlife sites. So, you know, shout out to our, our membership and the chapters are doing a lot of uh, hard work right now, uh, getting out there and, and being active, helping to um, give a good face in front to, to the society, um, working with a lot of local managers uh, on their, their respective projects. Um, but me regionally, some of the big projects that that RGS uh, we're working on right now, uh, by far the biggest one and the one that I'm most excited about is how the Rough Grouse Society is engaging with uh, shared uh, stewardship with the, the Forest Service. Um, currently, we are, well, this past winter, we harvested our very first uh, shared stewardship project with the Chippewa National Forest in Minnesota, uh, which okay. was a an 83-acre timber sale project. Uh, on the Tower Lake and Morph Meadows Hunter Walking Trails um, on the Chippewa National Forest. And actually, RGS being a very, um, taking a very active role in the, the timber management of these hunter walking trails on, on the National Forest as part of shared stewardship. And then taking the revenue that was generated from uh, those timber sales and reinvesting it back into the forest where it came off of, uh, hiring contractors to do additional Trail, trail maintenance work, uh, rehabilitation work, and habitat work uh, on, on the Chippewa National Forest. It's a model that we're taking to other national forests. We're actually uh, in the process of finalizing an agreement with the Manistee National Forest in Southern Michigan. Um, we're working on two separate agreements right now, uh, as well with the Ottawa National Forest. Um, and we're also working on completing one um, another one, I should say, with the Chippewa National Forest. So we're taking a very active role in, in forest management through this tool uh, called right. Shared Stewardship, and it's a it's it's a very exciting time to be part of the Rough Grouse Society because of uh, those efforts. So what is exact what exactly does shared stewardship mean? Does that mean that the Rough Grouse Society is controlling public land, the management of it? It, it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it it. In a, if you're to boil it down, 
what it, what it essentially means is that we're we're given the opportunity to help the Forest Service manage some of their their timber. Um, okay. So it, it's it's uh, it's where the Forest Service has basically identified us as a partner, saying that uh, you have these goals and objectives in mind to do X, Y, and Z. Um, we have these forested areas that are uh, have gone through planning, have gone through the approval process, public commenting process. We're going to manage these really in line with what you guys uh, are prescribing and, and want to manage. Let's work together to have okay. some shared stewardship of these forested areas, uh, allow RGS to take a more active role in helping us do the timber sale establishment, uh, bidding and harvesting of that timber, and then taking that revenue that's generated from, from the timber, because of course in, in our region, timber generates a lot of revenue to help manage forests. So right. taking that revenue and then reinvesting it back into that local forest to do a bunch of additional habitat projects and treatments. So on, on the Chippewa National Forest, for example, we mowed just shy of a hundred miles of hunter walking trails, uh, maintaining them. Uh, we installed um, ten trailheads, and um, we're looking at basically. And we haven't even spent all the revenue yet. <laughs> so we're looking at <laughs> what are we going to do this year as far as um, uh, additional habitat projects, looking at some pollinator planting work, looking at doing uh, some additional trail mowing, additional gate work, and additional timber harvest establishment work uh, through that shared stewardship. So it, it's kind of a win-win for the Rough Grouse Society. We get to take an active role in managing the forest. We get to reinvest that um, money back into the local communities, local forests. Forest Service loves it because we help complete their work objectives. Sure. <laughs> so we have to, to take some of the workload burden off of them. And of course, they're, they're monitoring the work that we do all the time. So it, it's very close communication as far as what we're working on and making sure that we're meeting all their uh, their steps, guidelines, and in, in, in accordance with those forest management plans. And um, and they're also, I mean, just, just the folks I've worked with on the Chippewa National Forest, for example, they take a lot of pride in their forest. And you know, they face a lot of budget constraints, like a lot of private individuals, a lot of county, state, federal government agencies. They've got budget constraints and can't always get the things done that they want to get done in the forest. And I mean, I've, I've seen forest managers almost come to tears, just happy about some of the work that we're able to do to install new gates, for example, on sure. some channels, just that they had wanted for years to have new gates. And they're working the gates that are all shot full of holes, beat up, bent up. Um, pulled out of the ground and they were able to come in and, and like I said, reinvest that money back in the local community. And, and you have these, these uh, uh, forest service employees who were, they, they're taking a lot of pride in, in the work that we're getting done through the shared stewardship because they, they are, are seeing how um, we're rehabilitating these assets for, for the public. Right. No, that's, that's awesome. Like that, that's, is that a new program then? Is that relatively, it sounds like it must be relatively new. It's, it's, it's relatively new in the grand scheme of things. It's if you've, if you've heard of good neighbor authority, it's basically related to the good neighbor authority, um, which GNA has, has allowed uh, the states to take an active role. So Wisconsin DNR, Michigan DNR, Minnesota DNR are all taking active roles in, in a similar type program. Shared stewardship is basically how nonprofit organizations um, interact with the Forest Service through that that shared stewardship. Got it. And then when you when you start a program like that, and when Rough Grouse 
Do you, are there other other nonprofits involved as well? Then, uh, like, this, so or do they really just do one nonprofit? Like, would you be in a project with also, let's say, the Wild Turkey Federation? Like, would you two work the, together? On there, there are actually we we okay. have uh, in in my region. Of course, we can't. I've got a big region, right? Um, right. Extending all the way to to Ohio, and actually, we've been discussing some projects on the Wayne National Forest uh, with the Wild Turkey Federation. So actually, okay. uh, the Forest Service will work with. Uh, not you know this is not just an RGS forest service right. thing. This is really the opportunity has opened up to a wide range of of conservation nonprofit organizations. They're looking at how the goals and objectives align with those uh, uh, conservation nonprofits. Um, but we believe me, we're we're all in communication and, and talking behind the scenes. RGS, um, American Bird Conservancy, uh, Wild Turkey Federation. We're all talking about how we can. Um, really meet these capacity issues and, and questions about how we can help them with a project. They can help us with a project and we can work together for these um, really these shared conservation uh, goals and objectives. Got it. Got it. I wasn't sure if they try to, if they tend to pick one organization or if they'll bring multiple organizations in sometimes too many roosters in the hen house can cause issues. And I wasn't sure how all that, how, what they did to try to make sure that doesn't happen. But I guess at the end of the day, it's the national forest that's still in charge. It, it, at the end of the day, they, it, it's really, it's up to those forest service processes. You know, sure. they, they go through planning, public commenting, um, their NEPA approval process. So, so there's, they have a lot of oversight in as far as what we do, but uh, again, it, it's, it's a tool in a toolbox for the forest service to be able to do a lot of this work on the ground that they want to get done. At the end of the day, it's not always about the timber harvest. The timber harvest is a big portion of what we're doing, uh, but it's it's that reinvestment of those dollars back into those those areas uh, that that is is very important. Um, but there's you know that's not the only way that we actually engage with the the national forests. For example, um, the Superior National Forest, we are working with them on a 1.8 million dollar grant in the state of Minnesota. Um, as part of what's called the Moose Habitat Collaborative. So they're, again, thinking about rough grouse, diverse forests sure. we, we need. That includes managing moose habitat. Moose habitat is a lot of crossover for grouse and woodcock habitat. So we're actually working with Superior National Forest on a $1.8 million grant that RGS helped secure with, with some of our part, other partners, uh, Nature Conservancy, Minnesota DNR, uh, Superior National Forest, uh, various county uh, agencies, and we're actually helping to apply that that grant um, to the Superior National Forest. Uh, similarly, in, in Minnesota, we secured a three hundred thousand uh, dollar grant um, through what's called LCCMR uh, to basically reinvest that three hundred thousand dollars into hunter walking trails across northern Minnesota, uh, which includes Chippewa National Forest. So th there are other ways that we engage with the, the national forest, and sometimes that means securing grant funds and working with those national forests to uh, spend those grant dollars uh, on the forest. That's a lot. I mean, those are those are some major grants right there, and that can provide a lot. I mean, you add then if you then if you also get some timber harvest money in with it, I mean, that's a that's a that's a lot of money that can be reinvested it, into those forests. It's, it's a it's a big program. Um, like like in. I get at, I get asked all the time, how do I balance uh, uh, seven states officially? And what a lot of a lot of it comes down to is we are getting a lot of momentum 
here at the Rough Grouse Society. We're doing a lot of good work on the ground and the work is helping to pay for itself. And we're actually, we're in the process right now of hiring a lot of staff uh, in the Great Lakes region. Um, We just brought on board a brand new uh, conservation uh, coordinator for the state of Minnesota, a gentleman by the name of Scott Johnson. Uh, We're actually currently advertising a conservation coordinator for Michigan. Uh, So we're bringing on a new coordinator there. Our private lands program in the state of Wisconsin has continued to grow. Uh, so we're actually at, at three private land staff for the state of Wisconsin. And we're 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 gonna have some things, some other big things coming down uh, the pipeline very shortly. We are really expanding here at RGS. So if you want to be hear. part of a if you want to be part of a, a a forest dedicated conservation nonprofit in 2022 and beyond, RGS is where you want to be. That it's it's good to hear that there's that there's a really good push and a drive behind it. And when you can see the benefits from it with how you're working with these different national forests and helping with the plans and all that, it's easy to see like what impact rough grouse society is having on, on the landscape in a good way by creating these divorce for diverse forests. I've hunted it, rough grouse areas before, like managed like, like rough grouse society project areas and things like that. And you can see the work that gets put into them. And it, it's not just the, um, you know, our RGS here, I also want to, you know, say it, it relies heavily upon our partners. Um, sure. Partners are our key. Having having dedicated people on board, dedicated members of the society, um, of not just RGS, but also the American Woodcock Society, and uh, having dedicated land managers on board within the Forest Service, state, county agencies are, are all, it's, it's critical to have partners on board to get this work done the way we need to get it done. It takes a village. That's what they say, right? <laughs> exactly. But even like just to organize all that's a feat in itself. Even just to get everybody on the same page and actually make steps forward rather than just constantly talking in circles is that that's that's hard enough in itself and then when you look at these projects and some of the projects I've seen and the projects you're talking about and the miles and miles of mowed trails you put in and pollinator projects as well, which I want to touch base on here quick too, because I had no idea Rough Grouse Society had anything to do with that. Well, yeah, we, we can talk plenty about uh, pollinator work. <laughs> um, I, I, I had no idea that was part of Rough Grouse Society's like plan. Like for the, I understand it'd be part of forest management, but I just never really put the two and two together that you, you, you want healthy forests. Healthy forest takes pollinators too. Well, so so non-forested openings are, are pretty important to not, not just the rough grouse, but actually American woodcock. Uh, so sure. non-forested openings are, are critical part of woodcock uh, mating displays um, and how they, they seek out those, those open areas and then um, fly up and do, do their sky dance. Um, but uh, when we, we specifically think about um, rough grouse, uh, pollinator plantings are very important for um, invertebrates. So when we think about, you know, more holistically about rough grouse and rough grouse management, we, we need to get outside the mindset of managing just for young forest in the fall when we're out there hunting, right? right? We need to be thinking about what are young rough grouse brood eating during the spring and early summer months uh, when their diet is primarily insects. So, you know, 90 to 100% of their diet is gonna be insects from the moment they hatch uh, to the moment that they're they're uh, young juveniles, so if we can 
engage in projects like pollinator plantings that can produce not just one type of insect or a couple types of insect, but a diversity of, of insects, thinking about um, you know, related to like trout fishing and matching the hatch, trying right. to have a diversity of insects always kind of popping out when different uh, pollinator species are, are flowering, um, budding out. Area matching for a wide diversity of, of invertebrates that can be part of a young rough grouse diet. Simple as that. And so it's, it's, it's thinking more holistically about the management that we do. Sure. And that, that makes sense. And, and then you get the added benefit if you're doing a pollinator project that like, that's a huge topic across everywhere right now, like bees and everything else and exactly. the lack of them. So if you're able to incorporate that also in the management, it's a whole nother benefit that a lot of people probably don't even realize that that rough grouse society is doing right now. So we're actually, uh, I mentioned briefly the Ottawa National Forest. One of the projects we're working on the Ottawa is through what's called a participating agreement with the Ottawa National Forest. Uh, same time, we're working on a stewardship agreement with the Ottawa National Forest. But as part of our participating agreement, um, RGS, AWS, and uh, the Ottawa National Forest and the American Bird Conservancy secured uh, $500,000 through the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. And so actually we're working with our partners at the American Bird Conservancy and the Ottawa National Forest to do about 1,500 acres of, of work on the Ottawa National Forest, which would include um, hunter walking trail, mowing, maintenance, uh, restoration type work. But a huge chunk of the work that we're doing is going to be working on non-forested openings. Um, okay. A lot of forested openings that would normally have been full of pollinator species, part of that ecology for rough grouse and woodcock are just overgrown with trees. So looking at doing uh, commercial and non-commercial treatments in those areas to um, do some restoration on the landscape as far as creating that diverse ecosystem. Right. And and that's something that I never really thought of. But as soon as you mention it, it makes sense. Young girl, I mean, even mature grouse, you'll find that they're eating bugs. Like I've found bugs and crops before. Like it's part of it. And you don't think about that you're just like, oh, they're in the forest. But like what you said, like you, those younger birds need those bugs, those insects and everything else. So like that's something to really think about, like not only for me, but for like listeners that are but my grouse hunting community and everything else. When they see a project and they see a forest, maybe, well, this used to be forest. Why did they turn it into an open landscape? Right. Like like what what's what's going on here? Not knowing that there's so much more to this puzzle. Yeah, there, believe me, there's so much more nuance to it and there's so much more going going on behind the scenes. I, I get asked uh, quite frequently from members about uh, some of the sharp-tailed grouse work that's happening in the state of Wisconsin, uh, up in the northwest part of the state, where you know these vast areas that were uh, jack pine are being cleared and converted to open areas for sharp-tailed grouse habitat. Um, and I, I, I do get asked by members if I'm okay with that, if I should be pushing back and saying that needs to stay as forest. But right now, you know, the counties and state uh, are working on actually a really neat concept and, and initiative um, where they're, they're implementing what they call their rolling barrens concept. Uh, right. Many of these, these areas that uh, were, are, were formerly utilized by sharp-tailed grouse have grown up to dense thickets of jack pine, which if you know much about the wild and fire ecology of jack pine, it is a fire dependent species. It is a dangerous species when it comes to wild and fires. 
Um, much of the jack pine we have in the northwest part of the state is fire originated um, from uh, the Oak Lake fire, for example. Uh, right now, these these jack pine forests are mature and overmature. They are uh, a tinder basket, is what they are. Sure. So it, it's it's this this danger issue from on the landscape of these fire dependent ecosystems and a greater wildland urban interface. So uh, the state and counties are taking upon taking the initiative of cutting these these jack pine areas down to create sharp tailed grouse habitat with the idea that they're going to let those areas grow back to trees and timber that then would be utilized by other uh, forested wildlife over time. All along, all the while, they're taking care of other areas and moving the barrens through an area, uh, basically rotating it through, saying we're going to keep a core area of barrens habitat for sharp-tailed grouse because they are part of the landscape, mainly right. for diverse species. Let's take this area of what would be forest, create barrens now, while that sprouts back up, move to the next section and harvest that and create the next area of barrens to maintain uh, a rolling barrens concept. So even thinking about a rough grouse society, how, how we can be supportive of other species that end up at the end of the day, helping to benefit um, active forest management, diverse forests and rough grouse and woodcock. We can be in support of sharp-tailed grouse habitat because at the end of the day, through different management techniques, it means rough grouse habitat too. Right, because it's that diverse horror. They might not use the barrens, but as they grow back up and mature, and now you're going to have, as they roll it through, depending on how they roll it through, you might have young forests. Now with now with um, mock, like middle-aged forests that are close to each other. Now, if you have some older forests, now you just create a rough grouse. Now you just create a rough grouse habitat. Exactly, and and that's what what uh, you know. Again, you asked why I wanted to work for for rough grouse. Sorry, what got me in got me to work here. It is uh, the fact that that as a society, we we are supportive of these type of initiatives. We are trying to think more holistically, long term management, how everything plays in with one another, how we can create these these healthy and diverse uh, forested and non forested ecosystems. It's really cool to hear all that because I learned a ton. I learned a ton. Like like the pollinator part of it and then like open forest areas and things like that. Things that I didn't think rough grouse society necessarily would have much of a part in. And then, but it, but it, it all like rolls into that bigger picture now. And now I, I'm getting a better understanding of that bitter, bigger picture, which is really, really cool because there's so many things I never took into consideration, like when it came to healthy forest, because my mind always thought forest. But you like you completely opened up like opened that up to real to me realizing it's way more than just the forest. It, it's uh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I can see I can see why you landed where you are because you're passionate about it, and it allows you to not like you're able to just build diverse landscape because it's more than forest it's landscape. Yeah, it it it's, you have to have a, a pretty high level understanding of a lot of these these concepts. Um, you know, there's there's a reason that uh, um, you know they have forestry degrees out there. You, you need you need people who who can think um, who are taught to think more um, landscape level in, in terms of the management. Um, people who can get not just the the scientific background and training and knowledge, but the real world experience and put all the parts and pieces together and think about how we can manage uh, at the landscape scale. 
It's a big picture. It really is. But I think you did a, I think you did a great job for like really opening my eyes. So I know that other people are going to feel the same way that listen to my show and the Barrens could be its whole time, like the whole Barrens area. Like I haven't been there, but I've seen pictures of it. And I want to make it there just to experience, because that's a completely unique landscape in itself. Well, come up this fall. Uh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, I really, I really do want to. Um, Cause from what, like what I've read, like that's a, that's really you like that little corner was kind of, that's pretty unique, isn't it? Like compared to like anywhere else in the state, like just how the, it's, like the entire it's, landscape. It's fairly unique. So it's part of the Northwest Sands ecological landscape uh, in, in Wisconsin, but there's also a Northeast Sands ecological landscape that that's fairly similar. Um, <laughs> I always tell people that, uh, you know, we, we have very, we have very diverse forest here in Wisconsin. And largely we have the glaciers to blame or thanks for that. Um, Cause they, they did a number on the geology of our state, the hydrology of our state and really drove uh, what forested ecosystems we have today. So we, we have our glaciation to, to thank uh, for really the, the diversity of not just our landscapes, but the wildlife that inhabit it. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it, it's up to us to, uh, we're, we're entrusted with making sure that we can help maintain uh, that right. diversity of wildlife in our landscape. Um, and I, I would say, you know, this may be where I could do a plug for, for RGS. If you're interested in learning more about what we're doing, getting active, like I said, we just had a bunch of chapters going out the past few weeks, doing a lot of uh, chapter habitat projects. Um, get, get engaged, become a member, become a supporter of the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society. Um, go to our website, roughgrousesociety.org learn more about what we're doing. We actually, we've been working on um, uh, communicating to our members a lot better about what we we're doing as a society. We have tabs on our, our main landing page related to our different uh, regions. So you can actually search different habitat projects we're, we're working on and read about those projects, find some pictures, uh, video, and, and learn a lot more about what we're doing as a society. Become a member. That's all that that's awesome. Like I haven't been on the website in a long time, but it's nice to know that you're drilling it down to region specific so people can find out info about either the areas they live or the areas they frequent to hunt. Because when I've been out, because I do a lot of grouse hunting, like I'm up in northern Wisconsin as much as I can possibly be during the fall. It's my favorite time of year to be out there, not only for grouse, but for fishing, everything. I, if I can move up there, I would. It's just not my cars right now. Um, but when I'm up there, I mean, I've ran into people from Texas, Arizona the Carolinas, Pennsylvania, from Maine, like all over. So even if you're not from Wisconsin, like you can see like those areas you frequent, those areas you visit, the areas that you, like you come up here to hunt. Now you can drill in to see what's actually happening in those areas and how Rough Grouse Society is benefiting that. Well, hopefully, uh, uh, like I said, we, we hired a, a new forest wildlife specialist in Whitehall, Wisconsin, which is part of the Driftless region. We're really looking at, you know, beyond the Northwoods of Wisconsin for, for grouse and woodcock habitat. We're, like I said, we're part of a, a society that, that's currently growing. Um, we're, we're expanding the efforts that we're, we're undertaking in, in this state and, and other states. So uh, uh, become a member. There's, we're going to help create some opportunity across the board. That's awesome. It's awesome to hear you guys starting to work in the driftless region. I mean, that's its whole unique. Like, I, if you're a trout fisherman, we could spend two episodes on the driftless region. Oh yeah, oh yeah. If you're a trout fisherman, you've heard of it. I mean, I, if you haven't, I'd be I'd be shocked. But that's this whole unique glacier driven. That's another 
thing thing from the glacier, right? So a lack lack of glaciation in right. that case. La yep. Right. Well, John, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, you just gave a great shout out to the Rough Grouse Society. Is there anybody else you want to shout out? Anything else that listeners you think would benefit if they went and saw or visited any of the partners that you think uh there, there there's there's so much <laughs> i know i know <laughs> I, I i guess you know if, if you're not following us on on uh, facebook instagram other great way to kind of learn about uh, the society what we're doing um learn a little bit more about uh, uh about species their habitat of course if you do become a member you want to become more engaged uh beyond going to, to one of our banquet fundraisers. We do try to keep members informed on policy-related issues that are happening in their states, uh, opportunities to comment. You know, we talked about forest planning and management plans. If there's a state, federal plan, something that, that members should be uh, interested and knowledgeable about, um, concerned about, we try to keep members uh, up to date on, on planning efforts, uh, getting them the opportunity to comment and provide feedback to those plans that drives a lot of the management. So. Um, we can help keep you engaged. And that's really, that that's really a great tool right there. So don't just, when you become a member, don't just delete the emails thinking they're spam. They're not spam. There's actually useful information in those emails. And when they're asking for help from our input, there's a reason for it. And that's when we have a chance to actually take even more part in the initiative and in creating these diverse landscapes. So everybody's fighting for attention nowadays. So let us fight for your attention because there are exactly. important things happening out there. And it's it, those diverse landscapes is what's going to be the future of the grouse and the wildlife and everything else. And if we don't maintain them, because like you said, you can fall behind the eight ball. It's going to be too, it's going to be too late at one point. Yep. Well, John, I really appreciate you coming on. I learned a ton. Like, I feel like I almost should have taken notes. It's a good thing it's recorded because I can just go back and listen to it. So there you go. Thank, thank you, Brad. We'll see so you here this fall for sharp-tailed grouse. Yes. Of course, again, I we can view them. Exactly. Exactly. And I want to make it check out the barrens because I really want to see that landscape. So that's going to have to happen. Uh, thanks, to, all my, to all my listeners, thanks for tuning in again. Until next time, keep chasing that experience. Thanks for tuning in to another killer episode here on Paddle and Fin. Be sure to drop a five-star rating, a thumbs up, or smash that subscribe button on any platform you're listening in on. Be sure to check us out on Waypoint TV, waypointtv.com. Make sure you sign up for the Fantasy Kayak Fishing League at paddleandfin.com forward slash fantasy. You could support this show through Patreon, patreon.com forward slash paddle and fin. Don't forget to check out the website paddleandfin.com. Catch us on YouTube. If you got a question, comment, or want to see a future guest on the show, be sure to email us at paddleandfin at gmail.com. Shout out to our show supporters, Yak Gadget. You can check out all the fine kayak accessories at yakgadget.com. Pelican Professional. For all your cases, coolers, and lighting needs, go to pelican.com. Rocktown Adventures, your Midwest premier paddle sports destination, go to rocktownadventures.com. Eastport Marina, the beautiful destination on Dale Hollow Lake. 
if you're looking for lodging, kayaks, kayak accessories, or anything fishing related on the beautiful Dale Hollow Lake, go to eastport.info. And Jigmasters Jigs, when in doubt, get the jig out. Go to jigmasters.com and fill your tackle boxes today.